Good Choices, a holistic conversation about dance, art and life with Sabine Parza. Hi everybody, this is Sabine. I'm happy to be here with Kerstin Kussmaul. Kerstin is a dear colleague of mine who lives here in Vienna. She was born in Germany and moved to Vienna when she was 18 years old. Kerstin is a dance researcher and artist with a focus on somatics and embodiment. She has been working on her PhD at the University in Oakland, focusing on myofascia in movement. Kerstin teaches many things, including contact improvisation, with especially the viewpoint of embodied cognition. She teaches somatics. She is on the board of different schools, and she has been a programming director both for Impulse Dance Festival. She has created the IDOC-DE network, and she has been very active in teaching at many different international schools. We talk about Kerstin's early experiences in dance and in music. She was a piano player at first before she started dancing. We talk about her time in San Francisco and finding her voice and uh, her self-confidence to present her own work. And we talk about fascia and its meaning for dance and dance training. We talk about relationality and different scientific approaches to the body, to movement, and to touch. It was a very interesting conversation. I found out more about Kerstin's life, and I found out more about scientific approaches and fascia and how she is currently working with it. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please share it with at least one other person. Hello, everybody. This is Sabine Parza with another episode of Good Choices, a holistic conversation about dance, art and life. I'm very happy to have Kerstin Kussmaul here as my guest today. Hi, Kerstin. Hello, Sabine. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure and it's an honor. Um, We were wondering before we started where we actually met. And uh, I think we assume that we know we have known each other for many years, actually, sort of um, tracking each other. I kind of have heard about you before I actually met you. And I think it was the other way around. And uh, I think we finally actually physically met and talked to each other or even danced with each other was at Impulse Dance Festival. Do you also Mm -hmm. remember that? Yeah, this is also my memory. I also do not uh, remember the exact moment where we met. Mm. But uh, I also believe it was at Impulse Tan somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very big festival. I think it's the biggest festival in Europe, if not one of the biggest uh, ones in the world. And you have been teaching and involved in Impulse Tan's festival for decades, I guess. Do you remember when you were first engaged there? Yeah, actually, I had many different um, roles at Impulse Tanz already. I started at Impulse Tanz when I came back in 2002. I had lived in, the, in, in California five years, and I came back in 2002, and then I started at Impulse Tanz um, doing the workshop and research department curating together with Rio Hotzinger, and um, I did that for several years, and later on, I joined the staff, the faculty for teaching. I performed there and did several other events, and now I'm, I'm actually in collaboration with Impulstanz and the Centrum für Interdisziplinäre Therapien in Konstanz. I started a Reflex education program with them. So. In, in a nutshell, you just described your amazing versatility of all the things that you do, which is you're a dancer, you're a performer, but you're also a programming director, you're a dance researcher, you uh, investigate somatic research and you combine it with, with your work, you're a choreographer. And so um, uh, many of those things have just been mentioned <laughs> in your relationship with Impulse Dance. Um, I'm wondering, yeah, do you want to share? Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. in full sense it's really my artistic home and I do have problems sometimes fitting myself into those categories uh, of thinking and of doing because mm. I really do feed into each other and I like mm. doing all of them. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, if we're talking about the festival for me, it also has a very big place in my heart. I remember when I was 15, I grew up here in Vienna 
and uh, Impulstanz was, I think, in its third year or fourth year. It was still called the Sommertanzwochen, and it really uh, was the door to an international dance field for me. It sort of showed me the, um, the, the life that was out there outside of just the small town Vienna, which back then in the 80s, um, there wasn't a whole lot going on. And so Impulstanz has a very big place in my heart for simply bringing all these amazing teachers here over so many years. Mm -hmm. And I feel honored to have been teaching there for more than 10 years myself now. Yes, same, absolutely same here. Impulstanz really is my artistic home. And I left out one role. I actually started as a participant as well in 1991 in a workshop with Jean-Yves Chinou mm -hmm. back then um, at the Wintertanzwochen. I also remember that. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Kerstin, you um, have an amazing sort of scope of things that you bring together. I think it's really beautiful to see how you come in as an artist. I just found out that you were actually a pianist first, um, that you uh, learned the piano as a child and you were also competing. I didn't know that about you and that you came uh, from Ger that you, you grew up in Germany and you came here to Vienna to uh, study what was then called Rhythmik or it's, I think it's now called music and dance education or I do you know mm -hmm. the exact name how it's called? Now? Yeah, it's called, yeah, it's called now music and movement education. It was already just had changed mm -hmm. to that name when I started there. Yeah, also in the late mm -hmm. 80s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my question to you is how, uh, what's your earliest memory of moving or dancing? Was it through music or did you have, a, was that always in connection to, to music or did you have a particular sort of event in your life where you noticed, ah, that there is something going on with me and dance. I really want to investigate that uh, deeper. Actually, you know how I started out dancing was with ballroom dancing. I really grew up on the countryside in, in the Black Forest. And I mean, in some faraway Volkshochschule or music school, there was ballet available. But I always wanted to do anything to do with dance. But this was too far and I didn't have a driver. And I think it was at an Abiturball <laughs> of some relative of mine that I danced and then I couldn't stop dancing all night and I loved it so much. And then actually a friend of my sister asked me if I would start uh, learning real ballroom dancing and we did that all the way to competition level as well. <laughs> this was my way into dancing really. But I think um, what I always thought is very um, normal is that I had... Um, uh, all my life I had synesthesia. I, I hear I hear movement and I think that is mm. really my connection between uh, between movement and music that is um, and anything I see moving I actually do hear it at the same time they, they make they make noises in my brain so yeah that's a very special thing can you explain that to people who don't know what synesthesia is well, it's actually if you um, connect one sense to an experience, if an, to another sense, um, how I think, uh, it, what is it like with colors there? I mean, there's variations um, of all sorts of combinations between seeing, hearing, um, probably many other senses. But um, I think I also do, um, yeah, the, I think it's mostly the hearing of, of, of movement. And at the same time, I also noticed when I listen to music, I, I see the music move as well. Um, and it's not like that I see a body move, but I, I see movement. I really can't describe it otherwise in, in many different shapes and forms. So, yeah, I think it was always for me one thing, the, the, the movement and the music. Mm. Did that was did that freak you out back then? I mean, until you figured out that there is something like that. Or no, was it I just actually thought it's normal and that everyone would be like that. I it took me. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I, think yeah. I had to be an adult to understand that not it's not true for everyone. I thought like everyone mm. does that. So yeah. Mm. So then you were here and you were studying music and, and dance came also in probably in some more contemporary form. 
um, what was the step for you to decide to become a choreographer or to become a, a performer? Is, was there a particular pathway that, uh, that led you there or was it a conscious decision or what was the spark that made you become a choreographer? I, I always wanted to become a dancer or a choreographer even more so, but, but I wasn't really aware of that so much. And being really clueless by the way I grew up uh, was in very simple circumstances. I really had no idea that you could start dance and actually have a professional career in dance while starting as an adult. I always thought like dance equals ballet. And if you haven't started by the age of 10, there's no point in, in going there professionally. And only in Vienna and getting into a world of contemporary dance, I realized that there are alternatives to that. And um, <clears throat> and then I started to dance and, and sort of toyed. And I, but for a very long time, I didn't feel, I didn't have a self-confidence to think of myself being good enough as a dancer and having no, let's say, um, classic or not, not even classic or like full dance career for a very long time. I struggled with, um, with imposter syndrome, <laughs> let's put it that way, that I felt like I was pretending to do something that I don't really know how to do um, in dancing and choreographing. And it took me a very, very long time to get over that. Hmm. How did you manage to get over that? I mean, what what healed that? I think um, I, I really don't know. I, I just think continuous um, telling myself that those think that this kind of thinking and th well, I think um, partially knowing um, consciously that this is really. Um, not quite adequate to where, what I know and what I do. Also seeing other colleagues, um, for example, Chris Haring, a very dear colleague of mine, he studied the same thing as me when music and movement education and he became a choreographer and no one would have doubted that he's a dancer choreographer. Like whenever those, whenever those thoughts arose, I, um, I consciously, um, told myself, but look at this, this is just not true. And eventually yeah. something, it, 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 it catches on. And then eventually it, it, um, it, it changes the belief systems. But actually, I, I, I'm sure it's also um, very much gender related and with self-doubts and perfectionism and all those things. Um, and I think eventually um, it's even bigger than that, that I felt like I have no, uh, how can I say? I have no, not, not relevance, but I have, there's no point of claiming myself as an artist even. And it took me also a long time to think of myself as an artist. And um, yeah, and now this, is, now this is very different, but I think that's rather a recent development for me. I think that's great to hear. I mean, I think it's something that many of us um, either struggle with or carry inside of us the sort of whole array of doubt or uh, perfectionism or comparison even, or just sort of the sense of, um, do I have, do I have a place here? Because there's not one place to be had. There's not one mm -hmm. artistry that once you get there, you, we don't win an Oscar and that sort of uh, makes the check mark. Okay, now we're the professional dancers. I mean, there's some awards within the dance community, but mm -hmm. I think it is so self-defined of what it is that we're doing that it is always sort of um, uh, a process of checking in with ourselves, and that also means uh, sort of applying our own self-assurance for ourselves. And I think that's a process that many of us go through, but we also don't talk about it very often. Because it's such a it's highly true. competitive and, and dance I mean, field. at some point, I realized that no amount of external recognition will heal me from my self-doubt. That only I can do that, no matter what others think about it. And yeah. um, and I, I think yeah. probably turning fifty was like enough with a BS. <laughs> now it's time. If you don't do it now, or <laughs> I seriously think you have to grow up now and get over that sort of thing. Maybe that was part of it too. Yeah, beautiful. And at the same time, I think also in a, in a historical context, and I think that's really good for people to hear who are kind of growing up in a contemporary dance field or who are 
like um, used to having so much improvisation and research and somatics around that it didn't used to be like that. Like when, I mean, we're almost the same generation. I'm, I'm, we just figured mm -hmm. out I'm two years younger than you. But back then it was sort of a very step-by-step -step path to becoming a professional dancer. You had to have a certain amount of ballet at a certain amount of age. You had to have a certain training and, you, and your professional life looked a particular way. And that mm -hmm. has changed in the course of contemporary dance. There's many choreographers now who don't have any classical training, who don't even have a, a, a classical sort of choreography training because the boundaries between performance and choreography or the interdisciplinary uh, uh, aspects of, of work has intermerged in so many different ways or the research aspect of work has been so much more in the foreground than it used to be and but I think it's a historical context that we also have to put ourselves in that it used to be very mm -hmm. different back then and what was it's... what was it supposed to look like mm. yeah I, I think that's totally true um, when, when I look at uh, how it feels now being in the dance field and back then there's a huge difference I think we to some degree we were the first ones really um, etching our way into this in a way I, I'm not sure actually Sabine what is your May I ask you, what is your background? Did you, did you do a dance education somewhere at a university or are you also a cross weaver? Yeah, well, I was, yeah, it's great. I was a late starter. I didn't start training until I was 15. And I, I started training at Move On actually when it first opened up. And so I felt like I was really late and I did jazz dance in the beginning. And then I recognized that I had to do ballet very quickly. And then I went, um, so I sucked that all up as quickly as I could. Um, and then I went to the U.S. and then I uh, had uh, I had an, a year in between where I studied as much as I could. And then I went to get a Bachelor's of Fine Arts in Modern Dance. So I have mm -hmm. a traditional uh, sort of training in Modern Dance with all the Lamone and the Graham and the Horton and the Cunningham training that you can get. Um, but we also had a lot of improvisation, which was great. This is Columbia College, Chicago. And looking back at my training, it was a very traditional modern dance training. But Shirley Mordine, who was the head of the department, she was also an improviser. So we would always uh, have just as much technique and just as much improvisation and composition. And so that sort of laid the groundwork for my later career even though I was a mm -hmm. modern dancer first and a choreographer first, um, it was very easy for me to transition into becoming an improviser. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like yeah. you have also a Limon background, is that correct? That's the one that I loved the most. Limon was mm -hmm. the most uh, comfortable for me. Also, um, I was really lucky. I was at actually the first school that I went to in Chicago was Gastrodano Jazz Dance School. And there was this Russian lady, Anna Chayun, and uh, a common friend of ours, Sri Louise. Um, I actually met Sri back then at the school, which is very funny because Sri is also a regular teacher at the Post Dance Festival. And uh, Anna Chayun, she was a Russian ballet uh, teacher. And she was a she was a Limon teacher, and she would teach these traditional Limon bars, and it, she was just amazing. So that was really my first introduction to modern dance was through this ballet teacher who knew how to teach flow, who knew how to teach sort of these mm -hmm. these big swings throughout the space, but also sort of contained it in within a within a, a classical discipline. Um, that was, it was a huge learning. It was really like, she was one of the most inspirational teachers I've had throughout all mm -hmm. the years. Mm. Oh, that sounds really fantastic. Yeah. It's interesting because I met Sri Louise yeah. in, in San Francisco at ODC theater, where I took classes with Liz Roman, who was my Limon teacher mm. back then. And she also did Limon and she also did sometimes contact improv in her class. And there was such a wide range of of uh, tonality in the body in her class and I just loved her class and I always felt like oh she was also a Pilates teacher and I felt like I had so much to learn so I always stood in the back row in the class and I felt like I'm just gonna learn at my own pace and you can do your wild things in front there and 
and she also had her company in San Francisco. And as those things go, many um, many uh, people took her class, hoping that uh, they would be recognized by her and eventually end up in her company. And and I do remember one day after class, she she took me aside and 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 said to me, "Are you going to dance with me? I need some monkeys." And she really said, "I need some monkeys." <laughs> and I had no idea. What, 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 what do you mean? What, I, am I a monkey or something? And then she said, yeah, I need people who know to improvise, who, who can feel yeah. themselves while dancing. And, yeah. and you know, because yeah. I wasn't technically surely not up there with many of the other people. And uh, so I ended up dancing in her company. And it was very funny because mm. there were very interesting, uh, different kinds of dancers, some of them very technical and also coming from ballet. And they wanted to have exact forms shapes and phrases and for me she said oh no you just do what you want so basically <laughs> <laughs> and, you had a freibrief with in yeah, german yeah, we call it a freibrief so. so this free letter what what was the name of the company liz roman and dancers she's she she yeah. specialized on uh, site-specific dance um yeah but mostly indoor not outdoor so she would yeah. um do things in hallways, in, in um, artist communities, places, in very different kinds of places. And I think she still does that work. Yeah. So mm. you went to live in San Francisco for five years. I imagine that was quite influential. And, and can you share a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I came first to Oakland and I did, um, back then it was still um, like a two semester full-time uh, program at Moving On Center, um, so somatic movement, education in participatory arts. And um, I, I got a, a scholarship for that, and that made it possible for me to attend the school for a year. And then I just loved it so much that I decided to stay on, and then I ended up dancing with Liz, and that's actually where I also took my first choreographic steps at the moment, mm -hmm. which, uh, yeah, so that was um, where I started. and. Um, very much at ODC Theatre in San Francisco and eventually I got I went through a, like a mentoring program there for young choreographers and eventually they invited me uh, the theatre director to for evening long piece and um, yeah so so this is uh, how I did it and then uh, September 11 happened um, and I ended up through that having to go back to Europe because I had the same kind of visa as some of the terrorists and I wouldn't extend my visa anymore. So I ended up going back to Europe quite heartbroken that I had to leave San Francisco. And then my life started in Europe again with Impulse Tanz where we talked at the beginning of this conversation. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, was. Was contact improvisation something that you first encountered in San Francisco or did you had you done that before? No, I actually started in Vienna with that. I started um, in the mid-90s to work with Bilderwerfer and Daniel Aschwanden, who I'm sure you also know. And, uh, and with uh, Alito Alessi, I did a lot of uh, danceability and the danceability training. So that was really my introduction to contact improv. But then in San Francisco, of course, um, 848 was a home base for me every Tuesday night, the contact jam for a long time. Mm. 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 For those of you who have never been to San Francisco, 848 is one of the great studios where there's weekly jams and it's sort of the, the hub of many artists, many artists who are also now here in, in Europe. I think it's very interesting how uh, it, it, it used to be the main focus of, of, of sort of the improvisational arts were in the U.S. And I think it somehow has also changed in some ways because many of the U.S. artists has, have also come here and have become residents either in Germany or in, in Spain mm -hmm. or um, are continuing to come here. So I think it's, it's sort of this intermixing of this European, um, U.S. American influence has sort of shifted over the years also. Mm. And I think it's interesting that uh, in some ways there are more contact improvisation festivals here in Europe. I mean, this is pre-COVID, of course, um, than there are actually in the U.S. So um, you work uh, with something in contact improvisation that you call embodied uh, cognition. 
Is that something that you came up with or is that something that you do in collaboration? Um, actually, that was a project, Embodied Cognition Researcher, who has done a lot of research on things like shiatsu and tango. Basically, things that happen where the materiality of a body and the whole sensate body is of importance with a partner. Let's say the intelligence that's being created jointly by two people doing something. My introduction to research, to qualitative research in the embodied uh, cognition in the phenomenology field. And I just loved it. I just loved thinking and doing and what it did to my mind. But it also did a whole lot of things to my, to my movement. It was too scary for me. And, and getting that experience, it was quite intense for a few years uh, research period really made me want to um, focus on research for a while in my life. So I think it's so interesting that um, this disparity between our physical sensations while moving and our sort of inner world while moving is in so many ways often so difficult to convey through words and then also so difficult to measure. And I think that's one of the, one of the aspects of dance that is... Um, that might be lacking in the sense of recognition also that so many of the other arts that are more language based are also uh, have been have been um, uh, have been transported longer throughout history. I mean, dance is so in the moment and it's so physically based that it's 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 hard to it's hard to measure. It's hard to validate because it is such a subjective experience. And of course, and there's this whole aspect that uh, that the body is so close to sexuality, but within all of that, how do you how do you see that interrelationship between science or research and moving? And you just said that it was influencing not only in one way but sort of in both ways that the research was also influencing your movement. So how do you how do you see this in the in the larger context of our dance field? And how does it personally or um, how does it uh, influence you artistically? I know that was a complicated question, but uh, I mm. think you know what I'm talking about. Let me think about that. So, so first of all, I want to say that uh, in my opinion, but not just in my opinion, the term embodied cognition is a tautology. It's like a an weiße Schimmel or a schwarzer Rappe, meaning all, embodied, all cognition is embodied. There is no understanding unless you have a body through which you can understand something. So, um, I mean, it could go into how it feel of embodied cognition, but, or we could go into the field of embodiment in terms, in terms of feminist theory, because um, the body was so much attributed historically to something that women have, you know, the, the, the childbearing women and and the, the geistig, the, the the men who think, and um, so attributed to women that they are the sensual sort of um, beings. Um, and, and I think that really has to do with our Western history about the body and uh, gender, very much related to. And of course, also related to touch, I also do think, because touch was always regarded, not always, but uh, historically regarded as the lowest of the senses, and that like the fanciness, sort of the, the seeing and the hearing was considered to be much more important. And, uh, but actually, newer research shows that it's absolutely not true at all, that actually touches our first sensory mode that we develop. And how we learn what touch is and how to, uh, how to process this information will actually become a model for other sensory modes. So to, to some degree, I think that dance has such a hard time of being recognized is that it's too complex um, in many regards because very, uh, I think there's still the need of making it this central thing that has oh, you only dance your feelings out and there's really a strange connection of dance with feelings where I feel like I see a similar strong connection of words with feeling, but always dance, like you want to express your emotions. What is this about? It's sort of dance 101. But then you get past this very quickly. So I think it's too complex for many people to understand. And that is actually also one of the things in the embodied cognition research on dance, how 
intricate that is and how not related intelligence is to to one person one of the one of the results that it came up is that it's really um, creativity in contact improvisation it's really a scaffolding creativity meaning like one offers one thing and the next one brings something and and so, so it's sort of it's being built together and it's in a truest sense of a word a synergy of what's happening because not one person would be able to do that alone not only on a physical sense in terms of sharing weight but also especially in terms of decision-making process and and it's all about the decision-making process in the dance and so um, I consider myself an advocate for bringing out the intelligence that's really inherent in dance even if you know it or you don't know it and you really don't know, need to know it as a dancer because need to know it in in terms of being able to articulate it because your your body knows it and that's already a, cogni a cognition your body it's not it doesn't have to be in the mind for, for it to be cognized the, the, the body cognizes Was that an answer to your Beautiful. question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course, there was a lot in it. And um, I mean, we could unfold and unpack many aspects of this. Um, I do want to go into also continuing with your story because you you mentioned that before that you really then took a step after um, or a few years ago to get your PhD. You went to New Zealand um, to study uh particularly uh, 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 fascia and uh, I would love to hear how also for our listeners and our viewers I you know fascia has been very much talked about it has a huge amount of importance within the dance community or it has gained a huge amount of importance within dance training but what is fascia and why do you think it is so important that we talk about it I think, um, what is fascia? I mean, of course, you can say fascia is connective tissue, and to some degree that's true. But I think, I like to think of fascia as a matrix, and in the sense of a word that it makes up, um, that it makes up our body in ways that it provides space for us maybe that's the way how to put it it's um i think fascia is so interesting again because there is an interpersonal aspect to fascia in how fascia modulates that is not recognized still not even not in the dance community at least not consciously and at the same time we, we are, how can I say that? Well, maybe consciously to a different degree. Um, I think most of the Eastern types of movement really use very consciously fascia to move, like any kind of Tai Chi practice. A lot of manual therapies like Shiatsu, I think they really work very consciously with fascia also. They, they might have different words and expressing this differently. And um, myself, I came from a myoflex side, so I came from a muscular side, and I always felt like the differentiation between muscles and fascia seems very obvious at first, and then actually, if you look closer at it, it becomes very muddled. And um, in Chinese medicine, you would see muscles and fascia as being part of one element, as part of the earth element. And interestingly, I also would expect and that is one of my things where I want to go on into my research a little longer, is that our, let's say, our sensation of gravity is really closely related to fascia, and I would think that you could also physiologically prove that, but I have not seen any research on that, and I would be curious to see some more. There are receptors for gravity, actually. So fascia is important because it helps us to modulate between in the whole range between being very internal in our perception up to understanding and perceiving what is happening uh, beyond our physical boundaries and that is I think the importance of fascia 
I think you have to say this, that sentence one more time. <laughs> It's a very rich <laughs> sentence. Yeah. So what, what I discovered in my research is that fascia is the organ with which we are able to modulate the direction of our attention um, in between a very in, internal uh, attention that is very much about the homeostasis, about the experience within our own body, and also all the way to how we reach our attention through space and how we actually can touch things through space without actually touching them, how we can experience and notice things in space around us and not just things, relationships. That is, that is physically being done through fascia. This is what I found. Okay. This, is it clearer now? No, it's great because what it opens up and it's it's very interesting because if we look at sort of, um, I mean, fascia has always been there, but it's it's been disregarded for a very, very, very long time. I mean, if we're looking at um, Western medicine, uh, anatomy, you know, when they were taking apart a dead body, they would throw out the fascia. They, it wasn't interesting uh, to to the doctors. They were interested in the organs and in the muscles and in the bones. So there's this huge sort of development. And even if we look at it through the perspective of somatics, um, either Rolf was one of the first ones to really address alignment and working with deep tissue, um, deep tissue touch or, or connective tissue realignment. Um, but I feel like there, and then, you know, it sort of goes through the lineage of Tom Myers anatomy trains and there is, you know, and then we go into the whole sort of uh, physical fitness aspect of the fascia roles and there's a lot of fascia sort of fitness out there. And so I feel like the application of the use of fascia or the, uh, the, the viewpoint of the quality of fascia has, has many different aspects to it. And of course, they're all interconnected because it all has this interconnected quality that is fascia in and of itself. But what you were talking about is really the sensibility around moving and dancing and how it shapes our intention and our relationship to space. And I think that's where dance comes in and has a very particular role in relationship to investigating fascia. I don't know if you would agree or not. Yeah. I, I think that's totally true. When I when I started out my research, and I looked at what uh, is there available in terms of fascia and dance, in terms of articles, I really only did find in research on how uh, dance trains fascia anyway, and why dance is good for training fascia, for example. But it never never ever looked the other way around. Like, can we access fascia through sensation through motor action through this whole loops um, that are really very much gleichzeitig and not, not a loop in terms of time but a loop in terms of action and uh, what does that mean for our bodies like what consequence does it have and what is the importance of fascia because uh, if you look at fascia you will find that fascia has very very many receptors And you would not need receptors. You know, the, the body is efficient in how, how, how it does things. So if, uh, and, and my working hypothesis was, like, if there are so many receptors, fascia must be a sensory organ. So let's find out what for and what we actually can sense. And that is something that has been overlooked, of course, because sensation is not something that you can ever quantify. It's only being there in a qualitative research and that makes things much harder and also much harder to convey in a way. Yeah, so if we're talking about fascia in terms of sensing, um, I think the biggest gift about it uh, in terms of both solo work but also in, in contact improvisation is, is that it allows us to, uh, to sense not our, our, our own self um, in movement but ourself in connection with somebody else and in connection with space and that there is a level of um, sort of interoception that is happening through movement that just sort of increases as we do the practice. I mean, I think one of the greatest things about contact improvisation is, is that we each time we do it, we also train the ability to do it. 
I think there's a term for it. I keep forgetting about it. But Steve talks about it in in Fall After Newton, actually, um, when he when he talks about Nancy. Each each step that each time that she's practicing, she is um, she's getting better at what she's doing simply through the form, uh, simply through doing the form. And I feel that that is so much part of of practicing uh, dancing through the lens of working with fascia is that as we're doing it, we're learning about it and we're practicing it and we're training our ability to work with fascia. How do you see that? Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the hardest parts about fascia is that it takes, it takes a while to actually start to feel it or to sense it rather than feeling it. And it's not so easy and it's very fluid and very, um, fleeting and it takes a while so you need some patience and suddenly it catches on and then it becomes much more clearer but you actually need some quite some patience in the beginning it's not a bodily system that it's easily uh how can i say that easily not sensible i, I think it's quite easy to sense your fascia like that but easy to use in movement without losing um, the sensation of it. It's almost like a fish in the water, how we imagine. Uh, can you feel the water? You know, you can feel the water if you're not moving or if you're just feeling the pressure. But if you're actually moving through water, it's uh, after a while it just becomes your environment. And that's mm. also something, uh, a really important aspect of fascia is that it is an environment and it becomes also an internal environment for us. Mm. And also in terms of contact improv, I, also, I always think, of course, that's totally true. But then what do you actually practice and what are you getting better at? You know, so you have to really be very careful about what you pay attention to and what you actually do practice. Because in the end, you know, you don't want to practice a form, you want to practice a practice. No, so especially in contact improv, that can be quite treacherous, yes. I think. <laughs> um, I think it's so important interesting i find it very interesting that in the times that we're living there's different kind of information different um, approaches to life or different approaches to consciousness even that um, don't necessarily have so much to do with each other but correlate so if we're talking about fascia and the development of fascia especially in dance or in, in uh, body therapy um, but then if we're looking at like philosophy or something that even in uh, in economics or Gemeinwohlökonomie, or if we're reading uh, about connectivity, um, uh, Charles Eisenstein's work, his philosophy. Um, I mean, I think on so many parallel avenues, it is all being pointed to the same thing, and that is connection. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting that there's something that is being developed, of course, with different qualities, but the, the core level of it is, is that anybody, if it's, if it's ecology or economy, or if we're talking about change in the world or change in the body, it is all talking about connection. And I think it's really interesting that this is sort of the quality or the theme of the time. And I'm wondering if we can get even a little bit step further and explain our side because i feel like the somatic and the dance side is still missing a little bit in the in the philosophical conversations so mm -hmm. i'm wondering if you also see it that way and i'm wondering if you have an approach to offering what we have to people who are really engaged in the change and say but here's another level another depth to it that um, from my point of view mm -hmm. i think is also needed that we really take that embodied step Hmm. I, I can, yes, there are several things I can say to that. One is, I, I don't think it's, I, for myself, I would not call it so much connection as relationality that we are talking about. And uh, mm -hmm. what you said also made me think, I think it was Tom Myers in Anatomy Trains that he, in the introduction, he thinks that why now fascia is so much a theme has two reasons. One reason being the advancement of medical technology. Uh, so that we are being able to actually insert tiny, tiny cameras into a live body. We can see fascia in function. And before that, with dead bodies, we only saw um, dead fascia. And because fascia is so much dependent on the fluidity on the, on the water for its functionality, it was actually not visible in a dead body. So that was just really filling material. And suddenly with uh, 
with a cameras a whole new universe opened up in, in seeing that and you can see that you know the, the strolling under the skin videos from uh, Gim Berto, for example on YouTube that you can find and the other aspect he mentions is that there's a real paradigm shift in terms of how we view things that it goes away a little bit from anatomy and towards function and that is really where the relationality comes into play and I think where also the physiology and the philosophy have a crossover because, uh, I mean, how can I say that? There's different kinds of science. I'm now talking to people who are maybe not so much into science and it's, um, it's a little difficult because there's of course evidence-based science which has, uh, especially in the medical field, a lot of value and we owe to evidence-based medicine a whole lot of good things. Um, for example, I think the whole childbirth and uh, with Semmelweis, for example, all this sort of stuff is actually really useful. But, and that's a quite a big but, we can only, you know, there's different kind of science for different kind of things. And it's easy to think that evidence-based science is the only science that there is and everything else is just minderwertig, like of, of less value. But if we go into qualitative, in the whole field of qualitative science, it becomes different. And there's, let's put it that way, you can say there's quantitative and qualitative science, but that's actually a binary thinking that at this point is not actually true anymore. And there's whole philosopher schools that actually say there is no such thing as quantitative or evidence-based or objective science because everything that we know is in relationship to us. And uh, there's many different kind of schools that you can go through and there's like those thoughts have been around for quite some time but who I particularly like because she or they, I'm not sure, uh, she or they, is actually addressing or, how can I say, coming from a very material point of view, who is uh, Karen Barat, and she has been a quantum field physicist turned feminist philosopher, and she teaches at the University of Santa Cruz, I believe. And unfortunately, her wording is a little bit complicated, so you have to sort of sort through what the words actually mean, but once you get that, there's really interesting concepts of intra-action, for example, which means that if we dive together in, into a field like me and my object of desire, it's always what we, what we create together in this moment, which is being shaped. And it's sort of, a, it's, it's almost like a vessel in itself. And this vessel enables certain things, but it also does not enable other things. And that is, I think true with any kind of science. So in a way it's a meta science that she's providing. Mm. And uh, even other people in the 19th century, like geologists have thought like, what, what if all knowledge is locational? Meaning it's an, a knowledge being meaningful and useful for the location where it is at, but maybe not in other locations. Mm. And that is really something that I think is probably a little bit hard these times any, you know, to get across any kind of complexities in times of Twitter is a little hard. <laughs> Even, you know, with this podcast, when I, when you invited me and I saw this podcast and I saw other episodes and I said, it's an hour to listen to. I mean, who takes the time these days, you know, for an hour to actually really invest yourself and do that and how you do that. It's, it's not a given anymore. So complex things have a really hard stand. We're back to complexity. This is, we were already there today once that uh, dance is yeah. so complex to communicate. And here we are with the complexity of science and uh, the relationality of it. But I think it's beautiful because it's it's um, it's life. I mean, at the end of it, it's life <laughs> right there in its all whole micro and macro organism. And in a way, I feel like when we're when we're investigating the body and when we're investigating movement, but when we're also investigating the soma and this whole sort of mystery that's inside of us, we're investigating how life works. And so it is uh, it's sort of a little lens into, into one of these miracles, but at the end of the day, we can just kind of go like, 
okay <laughs> this is pretty magical mm. we can probably understand a little slice of it and enjoy it while we're moving with it and while we're expressing ourselves so mm. Mm. yeah what i most like about dancers is if they talk about non-dancers they talk about normal people have you ever noticed that yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's great so for you, um, what's, what's on the plate? What's on your current, um, what's your current relationality? <laughs> what are you busy with? I, well, as usual, I'm busy with too many things. It's um, one, I'm making a book out of my PhD. And I'm saying that now in this podcast, hoping that being pod podcasted, it will actually get, get to life fairly soon. Um, this is one hope. Uh, another one is that we actually, my husband and me, we started in Italy a new place which will bring hopefully to life those different aspects together of fascia and muscle and ecosomatics and queer thinking and the non-human in ways that come to life. I yeah, um, This is pretty much it at the moment, apart from minor things like doing, <laughs> like heading an education program and teaching here and there and and fending off the things interesting stuff that's being carried to me that it's really hard to say no to at the moment so um, this is where I'm busy at so building a new place that actually materializes itself in, in Italy and this is where you are right now right this is where I am right now yes yeah, yeah. well it's been great to talk to you Kerstin um, I wish you all the best with writing your book I am currently <laughs> attempting the same thing so i know how huge of an undertaking that is especially for us movers because i think it is so difficult for me to sit and to write where i really want to move but um i'm mm. sure you will manage and it's great to hear all of sort of the different phases of your lives pushed together within a short amount of time um, thank you for all the contribution that you have uh, done to the field and thank you for your knowledge well, thank you, Sabine, for doing this podcast. And I'm curious to hear more about the other people and hopefully on, on long train rides between Italy and Austria, I will get to, to hear more. So thank you for your service for the community as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you soon. If you would like to know more about Holistic Dance and the Holistic Dance Institute, please visit us at our website www.holistic-dance.com. At. Holistic Dance is an invitation to transformation through dance, movement and touch. It was founded by me, Sabine Parzer, in 2010. It is a mix of different methods, a dynamic cross-method approach from dance pedagogical, dance and body therapeutic, systemic and holistic methods. We offer authentic movement, integrative contact improvisation, somatics and applied anatomy, improvisation, ecosomatics, and many more elements. I offer holistic dance workshops. I offer single sessions. I offer teacher's trainings, embodiment trainings, advanced teacher's tracks, year groups, and retreats. I would be very happy to see you at one of our events. And if you have any questions, please write me an email.